For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, considering the future of right to try for the terminally ill. Have you ever debated the proper way to pronounce a Tucson street name? You are definitely not alone. Discover why the monsoon is just as special to Arizona insects as it is for the rest of us. And Beth Surdit pays attention to the most famous creature of the night, the bat. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Republicans are gathering in Cleveland ahead of next week's national convention. They're debating what the party stands for in the shape of the planks of their political platform. Gay rights, abortion, foreign affairs, the courts, and the military are all topics of discussion. But one topic that made it in to the surprise of many was medical care for terminally ill patients. Christopher Conover reports that the issue in question has its roots in Arizona. In 2014, Arizona voters overwhelmingly passed a ballot measure giving the state a right-to-try law. It allows terminally ill patients easier access to drugs and therapies not fully approved by the Federal Food and Drug Administration. Thirty other states passed similar laws, and now it's in the Republican Party platform. Arizona was not the first state to pass a right-to-try law. That was Colorado, just months before Arizona's vote. But the genesis of all the laws is Arizona's Goldwater Institute, according to the Institute's Starley Coleman. We picked this issue up because we saw, uh, you know, what what many terminal patients see um, through experiences of, of staff people in our own organization and talking with members of the, the healthcare community in Arizona that um, you know, when it when it comes to really um, getting access to cutting edge medications, there's a lot of bureaucracy and, and hurdles put in place for people. Coleman says the right to try legislation that's sweeping the nation is a recognition of what terminally ill patients already know. When the end of your life is coming and you still want to, you know, give it another shot and you want to have some hope, Uh, that there might be something out there that can help you. The government shouldn't stand in your way. The law allows patients and their doctors to have easier access to experimental drugs. However, the treatments are not totally untried. They must have passed an FDA safety test. Putting the issue in the Republican national platform was not the libertarian-leaning Goldwater Institute's idea. It was actually done by the sponsor of the right to try legislation from Maine. So he did it without our knowledge. Even though the right to try is now the law in more than half of the states, it is still struggling in Washington. The Goldwater Institute's Coleman says that's not a surprise. This is a classic case of you know, um, the states pushing the federal government and the Washington-centered political system to do the right thing. And that happens all the time in our country. We just sometimes don't see it with the speed that we're seeing right to try move. Right now, no one has said they'll try to get similar language in the Democratic platform. But efforts are underway to make that happen when Democrats gather in Philadelphia two weeks from now for their convention. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover.
Tucson's multicultural history is reflected in its street names, and that can lead to some mispronunciations. I remember my first week as a radio announcer, getting a very pointed phone call from a listener after I gave a traffic report about La Canada Drive. Streets named after families can be even more confusing. There is no inn in Wilmot, but many people insist on putting one there. Next, Andrew Brown investigates the origins behind a few famous Tucson streets. When I started working at Arizona Public Media two years ago, people, and my friend Sally in particular, asked me, why in the world do we say Houghton instead of Houghton Road on the radio? As an alternative, use Houghton Road. So I decided to look into it, and it turns out the answer is kind of complicated. Here's Arizona Public Media News Director Michael Chihak. The whole dilemma about word pronunciation on radio and television is an interesting one. And when it comes to proper names in the Tucson area, there's a lot of controversy about it. My name's David Layton. I'm a freelance journalist for the Arizona Daily Star newspaper, and I write a column called Street Smarts, where I study the origin of street names in Tucson. Prior to about 1950, a lot of the streets in Tucson do have history. Uh, after 1950, you got a lot of developers coming in from Phoenix, California, and they're just naming streets anything. The English language and all languages are fluid. They change, they evolve, pronunciations change. It's really important for us to recognize that, but at the same time, have some standards that we can bear out. We decided to go out and ask Tucsonans how they pronounce these controversial street names. We started with this Midtown Street. Plumber. Plumer. Plumber. Plumber. Plumber? I pronounce it plumber. And what does David Layton have to say? Plumber. Uh, named after a guy named Nathaniel Plummer, who was the president of the Southern Arizona Bank. He was a prominent land developer. Nathaniel E. Plummer is how they pronounced it. Again, if you talk to the old timers who've been here for a long, long time, they'll all tell you it's Plummer. Houghton. 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 We do here at Arizona Public Media go with the family's preferred pronunciation, which is Houghton. Boy, I'm not sure I've ever heard that. The name is actually derived from homesteaders William and Florence Houghton. How it became Houghton, I'm not really sure, but it's definitely Houghton. And their home supposedly was located uh, where Old Spanish Trail and Houghton meet. It was a tough life, even back in the late 1920s, 1930s, having to dig wells and stuff like that. They, they were somewhat pioneers themselves. And I think it's important, since these streets do honor people, that we pronounce them correctly. We are on the side of pronouncing it the way the family has told us it is pronounced. Now, there, then we come to an exception to that. And this one's a dilemma, I admit. Ina. Ina. Anna. Ina. Ina. It's always been Ina as long as I've been here. The road that everyone calls Ina is correctly pronounced Ina. Its name derives from a woman named Ina Giddings. She was the first uh, female director of the physical education department uh, for women at the University of Arizona. She also had a homestead out there, and as a result of that, the street was named in her honor. Ina was also a pioneer for women's equality on the University of Arizona campus. Here's former UA Director of Athletics, Rocky LaRose. 
Ina Giddings is an icon around the University of Arizona. She had lots of thoughts and ideas about the future, of, of, particularly of women in athletics. When physical education first started for women at the university, in the catalog, it said that their purpose was for poise, grace, and carriage. And so literally there are photos of women walking around with broomsticks on their heads and things like that. And she took that from poise, grace, and carriage to an actual like fitness and an activity level, introducing basically intramurals here on campus. The new generation, of course, is always looking forward rather than looking back. When I'm on campus, I, when I refer to her, I refer to it as Ina Road as opposed to Ina Road, and it's tried to explain the historical significance of that, but it just doesn't seem to catch on. Again, here's Michael Chihuk. It's a dilemma because it's been pronounced Ina as long as I can remember, and I was born and raised in Tucson. I think if we said at this stage, Ina Road, people would perhaps not know what we're talking about. I don't know, maybe we should ask our viewers and listeners to weigh in on it and decide if we should pronounce it the way Ina Giddings originally pronounced her name. What did Ina Giddings think about this? Again, here's David Layton. She actually, in several newspaper articles, would write to the you know, Arizona Dia Star, Tucson Citizen, and saying this is how it's pronounced. People are pronouncing correctly. She had a long fight. It doesn't look like she won the fight, but it is, it is Ina Road for Ina Giddings. Even with the right information, changing the way you say something can be difficult. To some, it just sounds weird. I heard that it was named after someone named Ina, and I said, yeah, but we don't say that. I'd have to consciously think to say Ina, and if I did, everybody would correct me and tell me that I'm saying it wrong. Even the name of this city wasn't always pronounced the way it is now. Tucson. 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 Sometimes they say Tucson, but I say Tucson. <laughs> the name Tucson is derived from the Native American word shukshon, uh, which means loosely translated as water at the bottom of the Black Mountain, because uh, it was water that ran at the bottom of what's now called A Mountain. It's a slight modification from shukshon to tukson uh, to Tucson. Um, and I think that just, it naturally happens in all groups of people, in all places. Who knows, maybe the, uh, the Native Americans weren't very agreeable to the idea of it calling it Tucson instead of Shukshan, but that's, that's many hundreds of years past, so it's difficult to say. That story was produced by Andrew Brown. You can see the story you just heard and join in the conversation on the Arizona Public Media Facebook page. It must be hard to make friends when you're an insect. There's just so much bad press. But University of Arizona entomologist Justin O. Schmidt has been friends with insects of all kinds since he was a boy. He's even been patient enough to endure stings and bites from nearly 100 different species, a painful scientific odyssey that he recounts in his book, The Sting of the Wild. But like a true friend, Schmidt says the insects were not at fault. In fact, some of them took a lot of provocation before they struck back. I asked Justin Schmidt to talk about some of our insect neighbors in Tucson, starting with a recent incident when the king of sting got stung. 
I wasn't exactly trying to eat this honeybee. I was <laughs> riding along, and I, I guess the disclaimer, my wife wasn't quite pulling her weight on the back of the tandem. And so, you know, I being a, a good husband, trying to make up the slack, and well, I'm kind of out of shape. So I'm pedaling along here. My mouth was open, I was panting, and this bee flies in. And the only reason I knew it was a bee was because it stung me. And as I spit it out, I could see that it was a honeybee. And then I reached in with my finger and scraped out the stinger and said, oh, oh man, that was, you do not want to repeat that. One of the lessons that I learned from that, some of the things in biology we don't think about, bees attack your face, your nose, your eyes, your mouth, and your tongue. One of the reasons I found out there, boy, when they sting your tongue, it really hurts. I have to ask, did it taste much like honey? Um, no, I don't think I was actually noticing the, the flavor. I was, I was trying to navigate so I could get off the bike, and I managed to get stopped and said, you hold the bike, I'm out of here. And I think I sat on a rock and just kind of sobbed for about five minutes, and I sort of said, oh, I think I'm alive. Let's keep going. I have an idea that B knew of your reputation and decided to take you on on purpose, but that's that's just my theory. Well, you never know. <clears throat> now, I live near Midtown Tucson, um, and every summer around this time, I have an ant incursion in my kitchen. Oh, the ants come in every year and attack my cat food bowls, which I then have to move into the bedroom, and my countertops. The insect incursion happened right on schedule this year. Oh, geez. And then shortly after that, we had a microburst hit the neighborhood. We had a particularly strong monsoon. And I have not seen an ant since. What kind of defense do these ground nesting insects have against the floods of the monsoon? The best defenses that they have are basically just their physiology. That Most insects can be underwater for a number of hours and survive. They're cold-blooded and they, they don't have the high metabolism that we do. So, you know, we'll will become brain dead after five or seven minutes without air. They can go hours and hours. You may have noticed in your swimming pool, sometimes you fish out, you know, dead scorpions and things of that. You think they're dead. Put them in a jar with a little bit of dry paper towel. And a good percentage of them have been overnight and they wake up again. So I think that's one of the things that they do for defense. It's just simply they're hardy enough and if the flooding goes down, which it usually does within you know, several hours, then they can dry out enough that they can make it. You know, that's just a speculation. But otherwise, I think all they can try to do is go to higher ground, mm -hmm. climb up uh, a tree or something of that sort. But we don't usually see that. At least I don't. It seems like um, the floods come and the ground dries out and the colony goes right back to its normal business. But this time, as I've said, it's now been weeks since that microburst. I haven't seen a single ant in my kitchen. Well, and you're lucky. I, be I feel grateful. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, I don't know. My wife doesn't like ants. We get <clears throat> ants coming in, and she says, you're the entomologist. Get rid of these things. And so <laughs> I, I track them down. If they're a fire ant, which we do have, many people don't realize we have native fire ants. They're not the ones from South America that are plaguing the South and eating up Florida and Texas and mm -hmm. so on. Well, I grew up in Texas, and there I believe we have the native species and the invasive species. Yeah, you have all of them there. Yeah, and uh, they've taken a huge toll on the quail population. Our fire ants are much better behaved, if I may use that terminology. <laughs> Their populations are a lot lower, and they tend to be mostly underground. It's hot out here. You come out on the surface of the ground anytime except in the middle of the night, and, and you're toast if you're an ant around here. 
the imported fire ants are a particularly sentimental problem for people in Texas, for example, because they eat harvester ants. They kill off the harvester ants, the big mound-building red ants that you see. Well, unfortunately, those are the main diet of the Texas horned lizard, the cute little horny toad, as people sometimes call it, a horned toad. And they can't eat fire ants. Fire ants are just too miserable. Nothing eats them. And so the, uh, the horned lizards go by the way of the quails, and they disappear. Talking about creatures who can and cannot eat venomous insects brings me to a point I really wanted to talk about, which is that coming up on the show right after our conversation, people are going to hear a piece about bats produced by an author and wildlife illustrator named Beth Surtit. And in it, she describes bats preying on scorpions and pulling off their pinchers before they make a meal of the insect. But she doesn't say anything about the telson. She doesn't say anything about the stingy bit at, at the, the business end. end. And that makes me wonder, how do bats and birds deal with eating venomous insects? That's a fascinating question, one that I worked with Wade Sherbrooke, who's a herpetologist, the foremost horned lizard expert in the world. And he had some horned lizards, and they, of course, eat harvester ants, which are incredibly toxic, most toxic of all the insects. And we asked the question, well, how are they eating this rather spicy meal? And it turned out, to make a long story short, they have a neutralizing factor in their blood that's like a, like a natural antivenom that goes in and, and just destroys, inactivates the, the venom. But it's not in their stomachs. It's not part of their uh, no, it, digestive it's actually, system. Oh, they have other things in their stomach. They have thick mucus, which kind of makes it slippery, so it's hard for the ants to sting them. Because you know you try to try to sting through uh, you know something nice and slippery, and it kind of slides off rather than going in. So they have that in addition. But it turned out that they were something like 1,200 times more resistant to the venom than say a mouse, which is about the same size mammal. And so we showed that that's why they could eat them with impunity. So back to the bats, I'm working with some some bat people trying to figure out exactly if the same thing is going on. that We, we know with uh, grasshopper mice, for example, they can eat the bark scorpions, centuroides, and they get stung and it doesn't do anything to them. They, they also have a resistant factor for uh, scorpion toxins. And so we're thinking that it might be the same thing going on with bats because you know, in that case, your blood can't defend you against a big pinch so maybe that's why they want to get rid of the pinchers. Pinchers do real damage, and and maybe they're immune to the uh, venom. Kind of the same thing with harvester ants. The horned lizards aren't afraid of the sting, but they're afraid of the bite. And so the, ant will, the ants will mob them and start biting their tender underbelly or biting their little toes, and the lizard just panics, and it goes, tears out of there. Many insects seem particularly well adapted to life in the desert. How do you rate the Sonoran Desert as a habitat for insects? Oh, Sonoran Desert is a wonderful habitat for diversity. That said, for numbers, it's not so good because numbers depend on how much there is out there to eat. We have to scrabble out here, so it's hard work to make it, but a lot of different species do, and that's what's so fascinating about it, that we have more species of scorpions and we have more harvester ants, I think, than any other state. Just on and on and on, the bird watchers can tell you, you know, the number of hummingbirds that we have, I think, is unsurpassed. And, and it's just a wonderful ecosystem for all kinds of life. Plants, too. Justin O. Schmidt works in the University of Arizona's Center for Insect Science. His book is The Sting of the Wild, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. 
Artist and illustrator Beth Serdit listens to ravens and has paddled with alligators in wild and scenic places. She also knows a place in Tucson where the nightlife is really swinging. When a bat flies by me, the wingbeats kiss my cheek in temptation, and I hear a whispered invitation to learn the secrets of these crepuscular creatures. My initial search for southwestern bat encounters brought me into the Ortiz Mountains in New Mexico. Led by wildlife biologist Mike Rodell, six of us waited at the mouth of the old Santo Nino mine. At sunset, under a full moon in a lavender sky, I heard squeaks and rustling, amplified by a large metal cylinder lining the vertical shaft. Townsend's big-eared bats began to fly out in ones and twos. Wings swooshed by my head as I peered and listened for the next arrivals. About four inches long, the bats look like spirits with rabbit ears. Bats are the only mammals that can truly fly. They are of the order Chiroptera, which translates as hand, wing. Whether designated as megabats or microbats, the bone structure in their wings is similar to human forearms and fingers, if ours were over nine feet long and our bones could bend. Microbats can locate objects in pitch dark, three-dimensional space by emitting high-frequency sounds that bounce back. Using this technique, called echolocation, they can figure out the texture and speed of an object. And along with these natural superpowers, Bats are primary pollinators of saguaro and organ pipe cacti, as well as hundreds of species of agave plants. Unless you are qualified, don't touch bats. Saying that, I did. After leaving a sacred monkey forest in Bali, I walked by a man working on his front porch, a fruit bat, an old world megabat known as a flying fox hung like a large umbrella from the railing, watching. I asked an Indonesian if the bat was Taman, a friend. The man smiled, gently hooked the bat over his arm, and moments later, I had broken my rule of not touching wild animals. The bat hung from my wrist as I stroked its swayed soft wings. It seemed to be grinning toothily, as it swung upwards towards my face to get a better look. The closeness of that furry, foxy face was a little disconcerting, but oh, those beautiful, limpid eyes. Later, again in Bali, I stood at the entrance of a sacred and very smelly bat cave that looked like a view into a many-story tenement building. Thousands of bats, tucked next to each other, stacked in rows and clusters, slept, squabbled, interacted. One, who was quite obviously a male, kept presenting to the bat next to him. As he repeatedly nudged her, she tucked her wings tighter around her and over her head as if indicating, Not now, honey, I'm tired. While there is much that I will do to get to the great view, the sacred place, the animal adventure, here in Tucson, I can just go outside. Arizona boasts 28 species of bats, either migratory or year-round. There are lesser long-nosed bats, 
who drain hummingbird feeders each night. I spoke with echolocation expert Janet Tyburek, who lives in Tucson. When I asked if she had local favorites, she said, pallid bats. They're tough, wonderful, and they smell kind of like skunks and look like little pigs. She explained to me that they could heal fractures by forming the equivalent of an internal walking cast around the damaged part. They especially like high-end neighborhoods here, where they'll hang over the front door and porches as they eat centipedes and tear the pincers off of scorpions before eating them. For an impressive and easy view of bats in summer flight, you can visit the migratory Mexican free-tailed bats that fly out at sunset from under the bridge at Campbell Avenue and River Road. Towards the end of July and into August, the numbers escalate as mothers and pups fly together. Tyberick described the pups as kind of klutzy at first, like kids with learner's permits. Even when you can't see them in the dark crevices, you can tell where the bats roost by the visible and scented lines of guano droppings. I like to go before dark and wait to hear them wake up. These are social sounds and, in my opinion, a special treat because humans are not capable of hearing most echolocation frequencies. Spotted bats echolocate between 5 to 10 kilohertz, well within the range of human hearing. Listen to these recordings supplied by Janet Tyberek. Here is the spotted bat in the wild. Here it is expanded in time and lowered in frequency by a factor of 10. Bats change the cadence and frequency of their calls when they are approaching an object of interest and need more information quickly. These are Mexican free-tailed bats, also slowed down by 10 times. The slower cadence is basic search phase, the faster one's approach phase. Bats have existed for over 50 million years. With summer temperatures often over 100 degrees in Arizona, we too become creatures of the night. Lucky us who can just go outside and be enhanced by the wing beats of bats in a star-filled sky. You can see Beth Serdit's illustration of a Townsend's big-eared bat and find links to her other Art of Paying Attention stories on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood, with assistance from Isaac Rodriguez. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore.